If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Is somebody who thinks of all these characters from the cathedral's past as his personal friends. He said he was coming to meet my friend Alan. I thought it was going to be a living person. He took me to the centre of the nave and, and stooped down to a big um, stone slab and said, Morning, Alan, how are you? And this was Alan of Walsingham, who died in, I don't know, 13 something. That was Christopher Somerville talking to us about Britain's historic cathedrals. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interviewee is Christopher Somerville, an acclaimed travel writer who is also the walking correspondent for The Times newspaper. He's the author of a new book entitled Ships of Heaven, which describes his experiences of visiting some of Britain's most historic cathedrals. Christopher popped into our studio a few days ago to tell me about the history of these fascinating buildings and to share some stories from his travels through Britain's religious past. Can I begin with what sounds like a very basic question, mm. but... How exactly do we define a cathedral as opposed to just a church? It's 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 where the cathedra sits, which is the seat of a bishop. So it's specifically so about the bishop. Basically, it's where the bishop is is based. That, that's it. So there's actually nothing inherent about a cathedral building that makes it a cathedral. It's purely no, that bishop aspect. I, I think that's right. So the focus of your book is is on British cathedrals, mm. and I realise that these all exhibit great variety. But is there are there any things that are common to British cathedrals that would set them apart from those on the continent? Um, I don't. I can't think of any. Uh, I think. I think that you know the. It depends if you're talking about modern or ancient cathedrals and all those different architectural styles. We borrowed the we borrowed the Gothic from France, and uh, in fact, pretty much borrowed the well, obviously borrowed the Norman style from France. So th- these were sort of these were French ideas that came in, and there's a lot of wild carving and stuff that I would recognise instantly, and most people would as being British about about the style of the cathedral. But I I couldn't put my finger on anything which would say these are inherently British buildings. No. And as as anyone reading your book will realise, Britain has just a tremendous wealth of cathedrals. Mm. Is it unusual in that regard, or would we find a similar number of, of such impressive cathedrals in, say, France or Italy? Yes, you would. In fact, possibly some people might say more impressive cathedrals. You'd have a, a lot more Baroque cathedrals in uh, Italy, for example. Um, no, I think it's I think that what's what's fascinating about these cathedrals, what, among the many fascinating things is the history of the Church of England and how that affected them when the Reformation came along. That's that's something which obviously occurred in other countries, but it seemed to have occurred with particular violence and, and um, drama here. So I think that's, a, that's an important um, anchoring point in the whole story. So just going back a little, a little bit before then, when, when does cathedral building actually begin in Britain? Well, um, St Augustine was given an old Roman building to start his his ministry you could say that was the first cathedral 
there was, uh, by the time of the Norman Conquest, there were 10 cathedrals or regional seats of bishops. Fairly humble, most of the buildings, but powerful. But it wasn't. It was when the, it was when the Normans came, really, that the big, mighty, massive cathedrals, as we think of them, monolithic blocks, were really started. And that was a political thing as much as a religious one. It was. It was power and presence. It was saying, "We're here. We've got the power. We and God together are your masters now." And uh, and this is our statement of bang. We're here. And we're here to stay. And so, if we're looking at the great cathedrals around Britain. Today, do they still have quite a, a strong Norman air to them? Some do, some don't. Um, I mean, the older ones are mostly well. They were they were some were Norman foundations, such as Durham. Durham was a Norman foundation. When you go into that building, it's quite plain on the outside. When you go into it, and it dominates, by the way, because it's on this peninsula over the River Ware. So there's a castle and the cathedral, like man and God together. When you go into it, you have these massive tub-shaped pillars with huge deeply indented um, patterning on them, chevrons and dog tooth and so on. And almost no, there's no ceiling bosses. There's very little internal decoration. It's more a statement in stone, in massive, powerful stone saying, we're here, we're here to stay, come in, but be overawed. On a broader point, how far do you think actually cathedrals have been more about, I guess, the the ideas and the motivations of men as opposed to the kind of more religious side of things have they always been statements of kind of temporal power yes they have they're often about uh, pride and consequence it, it it's, a, it's the decoration of a cathedral for example you have these wonderful chantry chapels which were which were done in the 14th 15th 16th centuries where the souls of rich men could be they paid monks to pray for them night and day and these are wonderful elaborate um, structures which say, I, Lord so-and-so, am important, have been a good person, God, please notice me, other men, please notice me. Once you'd established a, a cathedral, usually a market town followed, and charters and fairs and prosperity all the way around. For example, Salisbury. Salisbury was Salisbury was founded at Old Sarum, a, an Iron Age ring fort uh, above the town, and it didn't, it didn't work. They built a massive cathedral up there, and there was a castle too. But cathedral and castle were too close together. There wasn't enough water on the hilltop. There was squabbling between between the, the clerics, the people, and the soldiers. Once they, once they had permission from the Pope to build down by the river in 1220, immediately they, they planned it so that there would be a town, a proper planned town, and a cathedral side by side so the prosperity would sort of be a, a, a virtuous circle. So um, I think... They were they were an expression of man's relationship with God, but they were also an expression of how the bishop or the local powerful family was feeling about himself. I wonder if you'd give us an, an idea of what it took to build one of these great cathedrals. Because I mean, in the book, you talk about this on the length of time and the cost, and it's just staggering to contemplate nowadays. Mm, incredible. I mean, um, Jeremy Dixon, who showed me around Westminster Cathedral, which was built towards the end of the 19th century, by the way, said that it's a dream commission, but you'd never be able to do it nowadays because the cost would just be too enormous. The last, well, the last sort of wonderful, significant cathedral, I think, to be built was Coventry Cathedral. And that is a, a collection of wonderful works of modern art. And it's also an expression of this pain and and suffering, reconciliation, 
abasement, atonement. It's, it's a very strange um, atmosphere in Coventry Cathedral. There is a, a, an atmosphere of hope, but also of underlying pain and suffering too. Um, that cathedral was built in was it 10 years, perhaps, 10 years' time. Um, but something like York Minster took 400 years to build and started as a, as a pre-Norman foundation. Then the Normans built their cathedral. Then that burned down and was shaken down by earthquakes. Then somebody else came and built another one and it was embellished with Gothic. And it wasn't, I think it was 1472 by the time that, built, that, that York Minster was finally declared a, a finished, you know, and consecrated. Sometimes it took a saint. For example, Cuthbert at Durham. If you had a saint... The saint could perform miracles and healing work. So if you had a saint already, then you built a cathedral to contain him and the people who worked for him, if you like. Or it took it took a military sit, uh, situation, like when the Normans came and they said a place like Lincoln, which was up on a rock, they realised that they had a fantastic fortified position there and here was the place to plonk something down so everybody could see it for miles and miles around. You needed stone, with the quarries, you needed thousands of workmen and you needed a, a mason. If you were lucky, you got a good mason because they weren't the architects. So the masons sort of were the architects, the chief masons. And you needed an absolute army of people, men and women, to keep to keep things going. And you needed luck about your foundations because most of these cathedrals look as if they're grapes. They are the great stone boxes, 100,000 tons of stone. Bang! That's going to be there forever. But in fact, they're all on wobbly foundations. Bits fall off, bits fall down, there are cracks, you put up a spire and it topples over. The story of these cathedrals is one of is one of rack and ruin as well as as well as glory. You alluded to the fact that it could take hundreds of years, mm. decades, hundreds of years to complete one of these cathedrals. Mm. So what was it motivating the initial cathedral builders to spend all this money and all this time on building something that they may never see completed? Well it's 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 partly the same thing that motivated the English aristocracy to commission somebody like Capability Brown to landscape their parks. It was keep laying down, laying down store for the for future generations. It was to save their souls. Very important. I mean, it's hard to imagine a medieval mindset now, but that was a very important um, you know, facet of everybody's life. How do you escape hell and get to heaven by doing something good like building a cathedral? And the idea of the church as a permanent structure, something that the church was the NHS and it was the job centre and it was the uh, the social security of the Middle Ages. Churches and monasteries administered all that. So people were very willing to see a cathedral built. They wanted it to happen. They wanted the, the town that grew up around it to happen as well. So the, the, the motivations were pretty strong, quite varied. And you alluded to the huge cost of building one of these cathedrals mm. and, and said that you couldn't even do it nowadays. Mm. Where did the money come from in those days for, for the church to build so many of these amazing buildings? Well, the church was the church was rich. People donated ground. And in the case of Salisbury, um, the Henry, the, the very young Henry III, um, who was only 12 at the time, I think, uh, donated wood from his estates to, to for the, the timbering. A lady from um, the Isle of Purbeck um, donated 12 years' worth of, of whatever stone they could get out in 12 years. Pe- people were r- really rushed to be generous, to be part of the, the the giving mentality because they wanted to save their souls. They wanted to be associated with it. And um, the, the bishop obviously had, and monasteries had 
tremendous income from their wife-like estates and so on. So the money was there. I don't know of any cathedrals which were halted because of lack of money. They were halted. Often, often the building was halted for many reasons, one of which, by the way, was the Black Death. There was a very notable um, sort of hangback in cathedral development and also in optimism, I think you'd say, about the decoration. So after 1350, you'd tend to get not much. And then decades later, often the building is resumed, but in a much more restrained style. Um, obviously, a lot of people were dead by that time. So then is it fair to say that cathedrals often did reflect what's going on in wider society yes, at the time? very much so. I think so, yes. If people felt good and positive that cathedrals went ahead. Um, I think that um, also this is why the Reformation was so interesting because there was not no cathedral building after the Reformation for a long time. But you'd have thought as those Tudors got more and more power and, and, and privilege and the golden age of, of Britain was taking off, if it hadn't been for the Reformation, I wonder I wonder what wonderful buildings would have been built in the latter half of the 16th century. It's a, it's something we won't know. And so nowadays, when we look at these cathedrals, they many of them are still awe-inspiring. But do we have any sense of what kind of reaction they'd have provoked among someone in the medieval time where they would have never seen these kind of size of buildings? I think they'd have been completely awestruck. For a start, the building would have been painted inside and out. It wouldn't have just been let's say, Wells Cathedral West Front. It wouldn't have just been a golden stone glory that we see now. It would have been a riot of colour all over and tremendous bustling to and fro because a lot of the um, medieval market towns were built up close to the walls of the cathedral. So there would have been, you know, the smells and, and sights, the five senses would have been working over time. And then, let's say you're a Lincolnshire peasant and you're you're working your fields and for some reason you come to Lincoln for the first time and you look up and there's this massive great building, something enormously large, dominating your view and saying, uh, what's up there? You know, there's fun, there's the bright lights, there's the, there's there's uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll, maybe not in medieval times, but plenty of drink, plenty of women, lots of laughter, all the fun, you know, is up there. And also there's God looking down at you and saying, come up and worship me. When you get up there, you go through the exchequer gate. You look to the, you look at the front of the building, and there's a writhing mass of carving telling you what's going to happen to you if you're not good. So there's this admonishment and power and this magnetic attraction at the same time. I, I think people would have been completely overwhelmed by it. Myself. The buildings are, as we were saying, they're really impressive. Hmm. How much of an engineering and architectural challenge was it to create one of these gigantic cathedrals without a lot of the technology we have nowadays? It was an extraordinary challenge, and it's amazing. So many many, um, masons made such a great job of it. In Salisbury Cathedral, there's a model of the cathedral being built, and that's very instructive in showing you how it was done. Of course, people are, people in France have been building large cathedrals before the English ones, so some of the technology and, in fact, some of the uh, experts were imported. But you can imagine that the challenge of building something which reaches 250 feet above the ground and weighs 100,000 tonnes and is made of these massive blocks of stone on very wobbly foundations, it, it's it's astonishing. And you can only, you can only marvel that masons who went from, from cathedral to cathedral weren't sort of cast down by it. I, th- I think it was just it was just this feeling. You were all working together on this massive project, which was going to bring prosperity, but also was going to do you personally a bit of good with God. That's why you get 
let's say, in, in Southerminster in the chapter house, if you get a wonderfully carved oak leaf, let's say. Round the back, it's just as wonderfully carved, although nobody's ever going to see it because that's that's your little bit you do for God because he, his eye will see it. So I think it's it's always important to remember the catalyst for doing good work was, was this idea also that God was watching you and was going to judge you from, by what you did. And you just mentioned an example of actually something I was going to ask about, which is mm. we've talked a bit about these kind of huge, impressive edifices, but in the book it also comes across how these fascinating little details that many of these cathedrals have. And I wonder if there was a couple you could highlight for us that you thought were particularly interesting. Yes, I mean, um, when I went to Lincoln Cathedral, I stumbled across the um, Mason's Yard. And in there, I met a man, Paul Ellis, who is a stone carver, an expert. And he was he just dropped his tools and basically gave me the rest of his day, which I was wonderfully grateful for. And he, whenever he has to replace a, a piece of stonework, he, he tries to do it with something expressing his own art. So, for example, there's a wonderful uh, skull he's done with pound signs for eyes and a gold coin between its teeth, which he calls greed. And he did that in 2008 at the height of the banking crisis, as an example. Another one, if I can, if I can use this word, at the time of the fox hunting debate, he carved a fox hunt around the um, pillars of a, of a particular door. And he said, I call this the dog's bollocks, because round the back, I've done this dog, and he said, I've carved just two little nuts, but only the pigeons and what the person he calls the big fella upstairs are ever going to see them. So he still wants to put that tiny, tiny detail in. A good example also is stained glass restoration. Um, it, at uh, Canterbury, Leonie Seliger um, runs the stained glass department. The, the care and detail they put into restoring 900-year-old, 800-year-old uh, stained glass is, is quite extraordinary. If you look very, very closely, you'll see holes have been bored into it, almost like, like woodworms, by acid rain and uh, pigeon dung and air pollution, generally speaking. And these people take these out and they photograph them. They very meticulously and carefully restore them so they're exactly like they were. And then they put them back with a with a gap between them and a plain glass layer with, with the same lead patterning but of plain glass outside so that the light can shine through but also so they're protected this attention to detail is is it's wonderful it's wonderful um, another example is the broderers at durham cathedral these are the embroiderers we spent some time with um cheryl penner who's one of the broderers and she showed us a thing of saint aidan she was doing a uh, uh, embroidery his halo just to go round his halo once with gold wire, I think took her 40 minutes to go round and then 40 minutes to come back again. And there was something like 100 or 120 there and back curves she had to do it with this gold wire. So she was investing weeks of her time just in this one detail of this one embroidery cloth, which would be hung over an altar and which perhaps one in 100 people would actually look closely enough to study. But people do it. They they give their time, they give their energy, their expertise, and their detailed work. Um, I suppose it's roughly in the same spirit that the their medieval forebears did. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the, the stories of cathedrals are often the stories of the people who live within them or serve within them, such as bishops and, and the like. From your book, are there any characters you came across from the past that particularly inspired or interested you? A couple of people who would spring to mind would be Alan of Walsingham, who was the sacrist at Ely Cathedral. The, the guy who showed me around, who actually came out of retirement to do this, is Michael White. And he is somebody who thinks of all these characters from, from, the, from the cathedral's past as his personal friends. Um, he said, he must come and meet my friend Alan. I thought it was going to be a living person. He took me to the centre of the nave and, and stooped down to a big um, stone slab and said, Morning, Alan, how are you? This was Alan of Walsingham, who died in, I don't know, 13-something. This man was a, a bit of a genius. Um, he was of, of Jewish extraction, but he was, he was Christian. And he was responsible for digging the foundations of the Lady Chapel in a place he shouldn't really have been. So... Uh, one night, the tower, which was next to the Lady Chapel, fell down in the middle of the night with a fantastic noise. Luckily, no one was hurt, but it was a huge cataclysmic disaster. And Alan, I think, probably felt responsible for it. So he designed an octagonal tower. He knew that this roof had, couldn't be heavy. So he and another person designed a wooden roof, which could be lowered into the hollow stone tower, and suspended there on wooden blocks. The lantern, the famous lantern, Elia's lantern, which is which is all made of wood, and showers light into the building. Wonderful legacy to have left. Another interesting person was Bishop George Bell of Chichester and his dean, Walter Hussey, who were fanatics for modern art. And they filled Chichester Cathedral with fabulous um, examples of 20th century modern art. Um, so, that, uh, yes, they let their personal um, enthusiasms run the way they did, but it's meant that this sort of ancient Norman building is full of unexpected shapes, lights, colours, and uh, I'm sure lots of people find a shock to the system. But it means that that, that old building retains new life and energy, which is wonderful. And one of the characters whose story is most obviously associated with cathedral is Thomas Beckett, who you talk about in the book. How important is he still to Canterbury Cathedral now? He's absolutely vital. He's the the main focus still. Pilgrimages still continue to to cathedrals, though not really. Well, some people still do go for medieval reasons, for actual healing, whether bodily or spiritual. But as many people through, through the course of writing his book said to me, people like to go on pilgrimages. They like to have a journey with an ending. They, need, well, they want to bring a journey to, to a conclusion. And in fact, Canterbury is the start of a great um, pilgrimage to Rome, still nowadays, a foot pilgrimage or somebody did it on a bike. But Beckett's the central figure. It's this wonderful, dramatic story of the poor boy made good and the the king versus the, the layman, or the cleric anyway, and layman who became a cleric, power versus virtue um, and corruption. And then there's murder at the end, which was which was you know, as dramatic an end as you can possibly get. And then the penance of the king and the, the feeling that, that um, Thomas, he was the most important saint in Britain, that's for certain. And Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, of course, it was, they were going on a, on a pilgrimage to, to Canterbury. 
I had a nice um, episode in Canterbury. I was just leaving the cathedral and on the wall, we were looking at graffiti because they are quite a trendy thing in cathedrals now. All those people who scratched, you know, Jim loves Frida in the cathedral walls. There's many, many graffiti on cathedral walls and they've been dismissed as being something a little bit naughty or just not really very interesting. But people are interested in these little personal accounts, you know, on the walls. I was just looking at this wall and I saw a long face, about um, two foot long, more than that, with a long nose, little downturned mouth and sad eyes, and a crown, an elaborate crown on his head. And the person I was with said that we think that could be Henry II. And then I just put my phone flashlight up and behind it there was another figure, much, much less clearly scratched, uh, an enormous face with those Byzantine sad eyes. And again, a sort of little downturn mouth and an enormous halo around his head. So this could have either been Henry II reposing in the bosom of Christ, or it could have been Henry II reposing on the bosom of his sainted friend and enemy, Thomas Beckett, and in, in, in penance and, and, and sadness. It was it was extraordinary to see how somebody who wasn't making an artwork but was driven to represent those things had put them on the wall there, no words, no explanation, and maybe they looked as if it had been done almost contemporary with Beckett, so say 800 years ago, and that message had come straight through to me. It was, it was a very moving moment. I suppose another low point for the cathedrals is something we alluded to earlier with the Reformation. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about what that meant for cathedrals in England. Well, cathedrals which were associated with monasteries often got it worse because the monasteries were, were, as you know, unroofed and plundered. Generally speaking, cathedrals jogged on. The the, the prior of the monastery become the dean and the senior monks would become the chapter and they just continue as they were, except, of course, with a switch from the Catholic rite to the new Protestant rite. But... The shrines were broken up. This was almost the most important thing. You, you had the shrine moved in a moment, a flash of a flash of a moment, from being a centre of healing and awe and worship and pilgrimage to being just a stone box with some old bones in it. And the box was opened and the bones were thrown into the river. Oh, nothing happened. There weren't no, no no hand came down from heaven and crushed the people who did that. The jewels and the gold were taken away, and it was like austerity. Striking. But of course, when the Civil War came around and Puritanism got a stronger hold, you got a much more dramatic breaking up of, of uh, symbols and wonderful artworks in the cathedral, like um, the famous uh, Blue Dick, who was Richard Culmer from, again, Canterbury. And he wrote an account of what he did with this vicious, frothy little account of smashing windows and breaking down statues and bursting out part evil um, representations of saints and so on. So much vandalism, so much hatred, and so much bitter bigotry was was unleashed in those days, and uh, you can only regret it when you see a place like the like the Chapter House at um, at York, you know, with the faces and hands knocked off, all these wonderful um, carvings which have been done in medieval times. And so, I suppose the cathedrals went through a fairly low point sort of around did. the Civil War, and from mm. then onwards, and. Mm. When did they begin to recover and when did they start building new cathedrals? Well, all through the 18th century, I think the cathedrals were at a pretty low ebb. And then the Oxford movement started and there was a great revival of Anglicanism, which coincided with the, or they probably fed each other, 
the Industrial Revolution, greater power for Britain, more money swilling around, and also much bigger um, cities in the north, of course, little places like you know, Birmingham, which were which were sort of scattered. Uh, industrial villages came together and swelled. Manchester, which was hardly existed, was was a you know, swelled enormously. So you had this large number of people who were who needed somewhere to go, and there was the power and the and the, the power and the money to mostly to embellish old churches as new cathedrals. Also, you had the um, repealing of the anti-Catholic laws, so that Catholic cathedrals began to be built for the first time. A great scandal when it first started but then again nothing happened no 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 explosions from heaven so cathedrals like Westminster Cathedral for example that's not Westminster Abbey but Westminster Cathedral which looks like a, a sort of giant um, warehouse is an absolute treasury of bling it's most wonderful marble gold silver gilt fabulous lights and all the rest of it a, a really spectacularly beautiful building but the wonderful thing about that is when you raise your eyes up the walls it all stops about 20 feet above the, above the church floor. And then the rest of it is this dark, sooty, black vault, which was never filled in with mosaics because the money ran out and, you know, the 20th century intervened. So you've got almost like sort of heaven and earth. You've got mammon down below in, in tremendous style and then just this mysterious space-like vault above. It's a happy accident, but a very, very beautiful one. Coming on to the present day, what mm. do you see as the importance of cathedrals in 21st century Britain? They're more popular than ever, which is really a remarkable thing. Um, parish church um, uh, um, attendance is going down all the time. I think, it, it, was it 2017 or 16? It was under a million for the, for the first time. That's really quite a shocking thing. And as it goes down, the attendance at cathedrals goes up. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, partly because they put on a good show they are centres of excellence, uh, still are in art, in music, in carving, in stained glass, in, in performance. And, of course, the service is much more dramatic. There's better singing. There's not always better preaching, but there tends to be better preaching. And people like a spectacle, as they always have done. They get used to a spectacle, too, you know, with television and, and all, all the modern media blasting spectacle at you all the time. It's not... I think a lot of people are finding it's not really any, it's not good enough, especially young people, to go to a church in you know, little snoring, where you're, excuse me, little snoring, where you're um, six people, um, six old grey heads are nodding in the pew and there's no drama, there's no, it's all very sort of internal and a bit repressed, it's, it seems. Whereas cathedrals often are, are they're quite um, flamboyant in their presentation quite a lot of the time. Financially, they're on very dodgy ground. Um, the National Lottery Fund has cut its funding to cathedrals by a large extent. And uh, that's something that they relied on. Costs, it depends on which cathedral, but it costs about five, six, seven million pounds a year just to keep the cathedral going. That's a hell of a lot of money to find. Um, and people's donations are not all that generous, really. They hardly cover it. So cathedrals are branching out. When I went to Durham, they were filming some Avengers film there, for example. It was restrictive. There were places you couldn't go. And uh, Harry Potter, of course, was, was filmed at Gloucester Cathedral in the, in the cloisters. There are people who object to that, but the fact is, if you, if they don't do it, if the cathedrals don't monetize themselves to a large extent, they're going to go on falling down and they, can't, they won't be able to keep up this wonderful standard of presentation that they have. 
The other thing is that if you talk to ordinary people, they are almost always proud of the cathedral in their midst. That our cathedral, we love it. Even if they're not prepared to give money towards maintaining it, there's this very strong sense that the cathedral is, is a, a focus in their community. And so I think that they do have a future, a very strong future. It's just whether they're going to be able to get the money together to ma maintain themselves. So what kind of health are the actual buildings themselves in at the moment? Not good. They're falling to pieces. Um, wind and weather, uh, bad decisions by, you know, George Gilbert Scott, who did who did so much to to restore cathedrals in the Victorian era, but you know they used metal clamps which rotted and opened up gaps which wind and rain could exploit. I, I talked to many many stonemasons, and 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 the general impression was of cathedrals which are falling. A bit of stuff's falling off them all the time. It's crisis management or it's long-term investment in keeping them upright. In the 1970s, they found that York Minster's um, central tower was falling down, for example, as a huge crack and it was going to widen. And the man in charge said if one stone falls out of the top, the whole thing could just come crashing down. So they had to invest millions and millions of pounds in shoring it up. As they shored it up, they opened up a completely new undercroft to, to do the work. And they found the, uh, some Roman remains down there, the remains of the, the garrison commander from Abor Arkham 2,000 years ago, the remains of his house. So now they've cut a trench and you can see the Roman remains and you know it's a way of making the best of a bad business. But uh, they were, you know, they were mostly built um, at a time when foundations weren't weren't thought through carefully enough, or somebody decided the cathedral has to be there for strategic reasons, even if it's not very good foundations. Salisbury Cathedral has is founded on twenty seven feet of gravel with rivers running through it, but those rivers have to be kept actually kept flowing. You, you'd think. Heaven's sake, stop the water going through. But in fact, an ingenious system of sluices and sluice gates and so on keeps the water flowing because if it didn't, the gravel would dry out, it would turn into sand. And we all know what happens to buildings founded on sand. Ely is founded on green sand, a, a little tiny lens of green sand. And once you get through that, you're into clay. So they are wobbly old things. And when you go to Durham, you walk around the outside of the cathedrals and you'll see the the northern winters have just burrowed away at those at that north wall particularly making the most fabulous colors and shapes out of the sandstone but they're eating it away and if you look at the trench which goes all around the building it's full of a sort of a scurf like it's like like dandruff constantly falling off the top of the building of little bits of stone there's no there's no um, let up in this attritional war between basically the weather and the and the building and of all the cathedrals that you've described in your book, do you mm. have a favourite one to visit? Well, of course, I should say no, but uh, I'm very fond of Ely. That's partly because it's uh, it's the cover star of this book, um, which the cover was painted by a very, very talented artist called Carrie Aykroyd. Um, and, she, and she's done a fabulous job of showing Ely Cathedral with a, with a strong evening light on it and a stormy sky behind and then some swans in the foreground. So Ely is a particular favourite, partly because it's called The Ship of the Fens. Very first time I saw it, it was on a windy day with the corn um, in front. The corn was sort of moving, sheen and dull, sheen and dull, like, like waves. And it did appear to be a ship moving. And then the next time I saw it was in what they call a fen blow, which is when the wind gets up and blows all the peat soil away and there's some dark swirling fog. And again, it was it looked like a ship, sort of like a tanker, sort of breasting its way through a fog. So I think I think Ely's a particular favourite, but 
course, I'm in love with all of them now. And just finally, what would you say is the most unusual thing that you saw or found out while researching this book? I think talking about little stuff, perhaps most um, the most weird thing that I saw was in the upper quarters of St Magnus's Cathedral in Kirkwall in the Orkney Islands. Wonderful cathedral. And there was a ladder there, a huge ladder, which was unusually wide and had a central vertical divider between so it was basically two ladders together and the guide said what, what do you make of that nobody could think what it was it was the Kirkwall hangman's ladder and basically two two people went up the hangman on one side the condemned person on the other side and only one person came down again they stored that in the cathedral and I think that I think that you know the wider sense the Coventry Cathedral experience was extraordinary where you had this these bombed out ruins from the Blitz raid in 1940, which destroyed the old cathedral. And next door to it, you have this new cathedral, which is a mass of wonderful artworks. But it's not a triumphalist thing. It's a monument to pain and suffering and to reconciliation and efforts for old enemies to try and understand each other. You'd have to go there to really sort of see it in action. But it's quite extraordinary how, what a message of hope, hope in spite of everything, uh, that cathedral gives. That was Christopher Somerville. Ships of Heaven, The Private Life of Britain's Cathedrals is published today, the 11th of April, by Doubleday. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Monday when Melvin Bragg will be exploring a tragic love affair from the medieval period. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.